don't cave to the pressure of following the, the the beaten path just because it's what people around you want because then you know when you sacrifice your autonomy to the opinions of those around you not only do you damage your own progression but you also breed resentment between yourself and the people whose opinions you are allowing to to gain an unearned level of autonomy over the direction of your life and so it will damage your relationships with the people that you care about as well Welcome to Life with Bitcoin, where we focus on the human side of Bitcoin by asking the simple question, what is it like to live as a Bitcoiner? I'm your host, Vivian. Thanks for tuning in. Congratulations, everyone, for surviving 2023. I know this year hasn't been easy for many of us, especially for us Bitcoiners in the bearish year. So hopefully the new year will bring more good vibes, prosperous energy, abundance and happiness. So this is the first year that the Live with Bitcoin podcast um, was out here. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you for discovering and tuning in the show. I've had so much fun uh, and learnings from the experience of conducting these interviews and producing this show. And will continue to put out my best foot forward for the new year. If you like my mission to shine more light on the cultural side of Bitcoin, I'd highly appreciate it if you could help spread the words, share the podcast with your Bitcoiner and non-Bitcoiner friends, and send us stats with platforms like Geyser, which you can find a link in the description down below. All words and love from the community will be much appreciated. So without further ado, let's uh, dive into today's show. Today, the guest will be joining us is Angelo. Introduction by request, a professional cool kid. Um, Angelo Morgan Somers is a young Bitcoin analyst and consultant from West Wales. Despite of being in his early 20s, Angelo has helped to manage multiple seven-figure Bitcoin portfolios. He has given talks at events around the UK, advised companies on their Bitcoin strategy, and written a book called Do Bitcoin that aims to make Bitcoin understandable to the mass. Thank you for joining us, Angelo. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We connected during this year's BTC Amsterdam. Um, I went to your panel, How to Learn as a Bitcoiner. And your panel was actually one of my favorite talks that I attended to in, in Amsterdam. And it wasn't on the main stage, but it was so packed. And I remember thinking to myself in the audience how uh, Bitcoiners do have this craving for human-driven content. And they do want they do have the need and desires to learn about how to integrate Bitcoin into different aspects in their lives. And there was this critical fact about you that I heard, and I decided to invite you on the show, is the fact that you decided to drop off from school at the age of 12. That was wild. So what happened? I never really fit into traditional school systems very well. I think just the, the top-down structure of traditional school systems, um, where... You know, you have these authority figures as teachers. I never did too great with authority in general. Um, I didn't have like a sort of um, a baseline trust in authority that I think most people tend to have, um, especially when they're kids. During my primary school experience, um, it was just like problem after problem. Um, not because uh, not I was like assaulting teachers or anything it was just I would ask questions that they weren't really um excited to answer in a sense so they'd be teaching a class and I'd learn about it a bit at home on my own because 
um, I'd get confused about something in class and then just learn about it online. And then I'd bring my online solution, which would be like probably, for instance, there was this one time in maths class, um, I learned about the cool trick where you can do, I forget if, if it's addition or multiplication. I think it's multiplication by drawing lines and then counting the intersections. And I learned about that online. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, this is a way cooler and more fun and engaging way of doing multiplication than you're teaching with the thing. But they have to do it by the curriculum, which is fair enough. But I never really um, had the requisite levels of respect for the curriculum to be a um, sort of easy student. Um, and so, yeah, I brought the, the solution into class and then it was the whole, do you want to stand up in front of the class and teach everybody your special way? It's not going to work. And then I'd do it and it worked. And then they'll get even more angry because <laughs> they'll be like just feeling dumb. And it was just problems throughout the entire thing. Um, so I didn't have a very uh, sort of, you know, I think primary school is your introduction to the world. I didn't have a very great introduction to the world in a sense. Um, and so about, I, I sort of turned to hobbies, uh, one of which was parkour. Um which is like the thing where people jump from rooftop to rooftop and stuff. I've always had like an interest in extreme sports and stuff. Um, not, not, never really team sports for some reason. I don't know what that says about me as a person, probably nothing good, but um, I always like the extreme sports, like mountain biking the and parkour and stuff. Yeah, yeah the adre- I've been a bit of an adrenaline junkie my whole life. So um, <laughs> I really enjoyed pushing the limits of like what I could achieve with that. And then um, funnily enough, the secondary school I went to had a, a class for it. So I got really into it. Went to this parkour competition about two years into my secondary school experience, which is when you're 12, um, 12 or 13, but I was young in my year, so I was 12. Um, I went to this parkour competition and then uh, I was training the drill for what I was going to do and completely screwed it up. Ended up hurting hurting my spleen pretty badly. I didn't know at the time. Um, I sort of jumped from this scaffolding bar to another scaffolding bar and landed on my rib cage on the left-hand side, which is right where your spleen is. So it's like the last place that you want to land. Um, well, maybe the second to last place, but I won't get in there. Um, and so anyway, I, I sort of took a break, went back. I was like, something's wrong, went home, went to the doctors. They were like, you've got a spleen problem. There might be like a tear in the lining of your spleen like that. And like, if you've got a tear in paper, when you pull it, it's much easier to burst they were like if you fall over you might die and I was like 12 years old like what the f- <laughs> what did you just say to me and they're like yeah if you fall over or trip around the house or roll over awkwardly in your sleep you might die and I was like oh okay that's cool um so yeah I guess I just had to walk it off because there was nothing they could do um because if it was the case that there was a tear in the, the lining of my spleen then um, an operation could cause it to burst before they've even found it, which could cause more problems. So I basically just had to rest it out and hope that I didn't die in my sleep, like the doctors were saying. Um, That was a bit of a, uh, well, it was a immensely life-changing experience um, because death is something that seems like a distant concept to most people throughout their entire lives um, until they start to get into their older age. But yeah, when it comes right in front of your face, when you're 12, you start reevaluating your decisions. Um, and one of the decisions that I had been making that I didn't realize was a decision up until that point was to to continue going to school, even though I felt like it was largely a, a waste of time. Um, whether that's correct or not, that's how I felt at the time. Um, and so I wrote a 22-page document to my family basically saying, I need to to home educate. I could do it quicker. And yeah, after a while of convincing, they let me. And so I left. 
You said growing up, you wasn't a kid particularly trusting the authorities. At what age you even learn the word authority? Like,、uh, how did you, how did you know? Even during the years you were going to school,、um, why do you think you were different? That's a great question. <laughs> I think I wouldn't have said it at the time that I didn't have a, a trust for authority. I probably didn't know the word at the time. <laughs> yeah.、Um, but it was it was sort of what the adults around me were saying.、Um, I think it was just. Yeah, if if most people, if most kids in school were told that something has to be a certain way by an authority figure, that sort of is the end of the conversation. But I was always、mm. wanting to know why it has to be that way,、um, which is really annoying for a teacher who's just trying to get through the day. So I completely <laughs> empathise with the teachers. I was, I must have been really annoying to deal with. But、um, but yeah, that was what I was like, and that caused I think friction between myself and the teachers. And then there was also friction between myself and the other kids. Not not much, but a little bit of friction between myself and and the other kids as well. Just for a similar reason, I think if I think something, I tend to, or if I if I believe something, I tend to say it,、um, which isn't always a good social strategy,、um, and has got me in trouble a few times. But it's sort of just the way I am. But yeah, I guess that sort of answers why I was different. They called me disruptive, but not naughty. So they, they at least acknowledged that I wasn't naughty, but then they still called me disruptive. And at twelve years old, I was like, "Oh, younger than twelve, even this was primary school when they said that." They called my parents in and everything. I was like, "What does that even mean?" It was an incredibly authoritative primary school as well, because at the school、uh, breaks and stuff, they just started banning everything. So they banned tag, and then they banned. Football and then they banned basketball because kids, you know, health and safety and all that. And then eventually, kids just started sitting down on the field, just talking to each other. And then they banned that because it wasn't enough activity. So we were just like, "What the? F- what are we supposed to do?" But at the same time, I bet not any twelve-year-old would have the same reckoning after having a life or death experience. So, so at the time, can you still recall what was your impression of death, anyways? So I've got a really weird dad who、um, is quite philosophical. So he's. Uh, I'd spoken to him about it quite a bit beforehand,、um, and you know he's got a unique perspective on death in a sense.、Um, and I remember, I remember one, one of like the the pivotal conversations I had with him、um, was about, about death. One of the earliest ones that I remember. I was in the car driving up to England with him. In the,、uh, I was in the back seat, and I was, and I heard some story. I think it was of a wing a wingsuit. Person flew into a cliff and and died, and I was like, God, I can't imagine like that. That must be so bad. I can't imagine anything worse than doing that. And he was like, Why? And I was like, Well, to to die, that's that's, that's got to be horrible, right? And he was like, But but at the point at which the guy died, he was no longer there to die. So you are a binary state one. When that state one goes to zero, the one hasn't. Experienced its own death. You can't experience your own death because at the point of death, you're no longer there to experience it. So it's not a problem that you have to worry about. So I sort of had that perspective, pretty like ingrained in me pretty early on. So I, I had that perspective, but the whole process of dying and the fear associated with it and stuff was、um, still very present. Besides the conversation you had with your dad, like what what do you think are some other factors of home education received contributed to the decision of even daring to? Think about I'm gonna quit school at 12 years old. My mom and my dad served sort of opposing functions. My dad sort of served the function of throwing me at, at the world and like trying to get me to do cool stuff. Like so, he was very on board with all the parkour and everything like that. He was the main one taking me to the competitions and was 
um, watching me do all the crazy backflips and stuff and, and was and could deal with it fine. I used to get told off by other parents quite a lot because I'd be using uh, playgrounds the wrong way and mm. other parents would tell him off for letting me be so reckless. And, um, and I think he just saw it as a necessary part of development, which is I'm so, so grateful for because I believe that to be the case. Um, and then my mum served the opposite function to sort of dial it in a little bit whenever my dad got a bit too lax or too loose. Um, and so that was reflected in the decision to uh, leave school as well. Um, I spoke to my dad first because he's crazier. Um, and then my mum, the sensible one, um, took a lot more convincing. Um, but we got there in the end. You wrote a 22-page document. I actually have a very similar story, but I want to hear what did you wrote in these 22 pages? Do you still remember? I think the last time I looked at it was like a year ago. I found it. Um, but it was like, it was basically a pros and cons document. And like, I threw together some charts and shit from like some studies about home education. And it was like, is it going to make me a loner? And it was like, well, these studies say it won't and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was just sort of like all of the, I tried to conceptualize all of the worries that they would have. And I had worries as well. It wasn't like I just decided it was a good idea and then found evidence to support that. Although maybe that was partially the case. Um, cause I had such a resistance to school, but there was the process of like, okay, is this actually a good idea? And then as I was confirming or um, disregarding my own doubts, I would basically just write that out and write out the reasoning behind it. And I think just more so than what was said, I think just the fact that I showed that I was putting thought into it made them think, made them listen more. Um, it wasn't just throwing my toys and saying, I need to leave, I don't like this school thing. It was, um, yeah, it was like an actual decision that I was serious about. And I think the document served the purpose of displaying that. Your parents, I have to say, they've they've got some balls. Um, to allow your 12-year-old son to just completely quit school um, by his own will, because I bet not many 12-year-olds want to be in the school in the first place anyway. So um, in hindsight, why do you think they gave you the permission and blessing to follow this path for yourself? Because it's a reckless move, and I'm sure they've received some pressure from their peers too i bet mm, yeah for sure they did they did do one port of call to double check they took me to a um a child psychologist to make sure i wasn't completely insane so i had that session with with her and then i i left and apparently she said yeah do not put that kid back in school <laughs> um that sort of helped my mom as well because she had all the diplomas and certificates on the wall and stuff professional opinion from a child psychologist then then that's uh putting some weight on the decision making there have you run into any problems or inconvenience for the fact that you did something so unconventional and grew up without a former school system um no no i haven't um only like getting funny looks when i tell people but I'm used to that now. Do you find it challenging uh, socially? Like, how do you make friends? How do you even hang out with them? Are they like jealous or vindictive to the fact that you're you're not part of the part of their class? No, I had I had a pretty decent group of mates when I was um, when I was in school, and they stuck out. They're still the same group of friends that I've got to this day. Um, and then I did other stuff in the world, like I moved to a different city um or to a city I was never in a city but I moved to a city Bristol for a bit and made some friends there um I'm still friends with today and uh and no it didn't really affect my ability to make friends at all um I think I still 
did I still like partook in social events and stuff it wasn't like because I knew that was important I couldn't just like quit school and then just like stay in my room for six years throughout all my teens that would be suicide how did you educate yourself in general did you pick up certain curriculum um how did you manage your day if nobody's there to tell you what to do well originally the plan was to follow the um the curriculum from school but just to try and blast through it as quickly as i could so that i could get to learning things um like with a purpose uh because i think the way that the curriculum is structured at that age is just sort of like general knowledge on a breadth of topics you have to learn all of them um and then you like you choose the ones that you want to focus a bit more on but generally it's just it's just general knowledge stuff um and so i did that for a bit but but yeah the textbooks were incredibly annoying and i could learn much faster from videos on on youtube and courses online and stuff like this so um so eventually i made the switch to just go to just ditch the curriculum entirely um and and just learn things that were pulling me um, rather than being pushed. Because when you're being pushed to learn something or you're having information sort of shoved down your throat, um, it's much harder for you to, uh, you're expending a lot of mental resources on on trying to maintain focus and trying to self-regulate in order to pay attention for a long period of time. Um, but when you're learning about things that are genuinely pulling you in, um, you have so much more brain space freed up um, from self-regulation to actually focus on on the learning. And you can learn for hours and hours and hours without it feeling like something that is work. It felt like fun because it was like I was genuinely interested in these things. And that, um, and yeah, that sort of brought me to to Bitcoin after a year. I found out about Bitcoin when I was 13 then. And so, and that is just like, I'm still to this day going down the rabbit hole. Like there's no end to the amount that you can learn when you use Bitcoin as like a focal point of your curriculum, because there's just a million subtopics. Um, and each of the subtopics has a million subtopics. So from computer science, to economics, to business, to psychology, game theory, philosophy, um, history, it's just like, you get a pretty good breadth of knowledge from from Bitcoin. How would your day-to-day look like? Would you be having the complete freedom of regulating your day and your um, work schedule, study schedule, or your parents had a say or given certain guidance to help you with the process? It went through like periods of experimentation, um, but generally it was self-regulated. You know the experience everybody has when they, they leave university and they're sort of thrust into the world and have to stand on their own two feet for the first time and self-regulate. And it's like, nobody's coming to save you anymore. Um, if you want to eat food, you need to make money, which means you need to offer value, which means you need to be valuable, which means you need to be skilled. Um, and all of these realizations hit you at once like a truck. And you're like, oh my God, I thought I was just having fun partying with my friends for a few years. And then all of a sudden, like reality hits. I sort of like um, had that reality hit when I was like 13. Um, and so you know, had a very large existential crisis and definitely my mental health struggled at first because it was just like all of that responsibility was my own and I was incredibly young. So it was um, the stress of that realization was uh, substantial. But the good thing about that is you alchemize that into um, ambition because if, you know, you're when you realize like there's no one coming to, to save you if you don't get your stuff in order then you have to get your stuff in order you can't just like wait for handouts or the student loan money to come in or parents to help or stuff like that you just have to um yeah find a way to consistently increase the amount of value you can offer to the 
to the economy. Is this your biggest source of motivation to know that there's nobody to save you? No, I don't think, no. I wouldn't say the biggest, I wouldn't say it's the biggest source. It's, it's certainly one because um, it would be nice if there was somebody that was going to give you everything on a silver platter, but that's not how it works. So when I was 13, I was trying to, I, I, all of that realization was hitting me and I was trying to think, well, what is it I actually want to do with my life? Like I didn't die. I'm still alive. And hopefully if nothing goes too wrong, I should have like a full life ahead of me. So what do I want to do it, do with it? Um, and obviously as a 13 year old, your entire outlook on life is just hedonic. So I figured that what I wanted was to have freedom in three axes. If I had freedom in location, time and money, then I'd be able to do what I want when I wanted to do it. Um, and wherever I wanted to do it. And I was like, that sounds like a good goal. I'll just stick to that. How do I get those three things? Well, I'm going to need money, obviously, to get the freedom and money. I'm going to need to get it on a basis that doesn't tie me to a location. Um, and it's going to have to be on a self-employed basis so that I have freedom and with the way in which I spend my time. So I started trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and then the so that was like sort of the North Star to run towards. And then the thing to run away from was like, if you don't do that, then you're you're just the guy that dropped out of school when he was 12 and became homeless. That's kind of shitty. Um so running away from that and running towards the the three things um my motivations have have, have changed since then they're less slightly less hedonic now um or very, very much less hedonic but um but yeah at the time that was it you had this vision and time money location this is pretty much everybody's um ultimate goal because this is what real freedom looks like and it seems like at 13 year 13 year old you had a really good idea of of even conceptualizing what freedom means um and it's it's not easy to achieve all these things uh, all these things all at once if the 13 year old self to imagine a life of of yours right now do you see anything that you were thinking about and you later found out not true yeah i thought i had it, i would have had it done and dusted by the time i was 16 but um <laughs> apparently that's not how it works um but yeah, I mean, in terms of like the world and stuff, I I mean, yeah, God knows everything's been, it's been a weird 10 years. There's two things. I underestimated how hard it would be to achieve those things. And I overestimated my certainty that that was what I really wanted. Because to just have freedom and nothing else is... It, it can be meaningless. It's great to have the freedom, but like what, if you can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it, how long does that last before you lose touch with reality one? And also how long before you, you start to go crazy? Cause you're like, I'm enjoying myself, but I'm not doing anything of value. Um, and so, you know, I think that's just a part of maturing is that I was getting older. I sort of, you know, at the time as well, I was obsessed with, with money. And I was like, everybody's heard that quote, like, do you rather be like the, the depressed millionaire or the happy homeless person it's like if you're a virtuous person you should say the happy homeless person um and so everyone sort of latched onto the idea that happiness is the ultimate end goal um and so I was in that state for a while and I started trying to like overanalyze um happiness and how to be in a constant state of happiness and as I got older I was like that's all bs um happiness is cool but if it's if you fixate on it as an end goal one that's selfish and two it'll definitely certify that you don't get it because um yeah it's a it's a happy i think happiness is a byproduct of a life well lived and i thought at the time that happiness was the end goal or the thing to get um and so that sort of reoriented 
the way that I set goals and um, plan for the future immensely uh, to the point where the, the entire goal in the beginning of freedom in location, time and money doesn't ring as true to me now as it did back then. Um, and I wouldn't have expected that at 13. I was pretty, pretty certain and sure of myself that that was going to be my goal forever. Wow, that's pretty profound. If you think about it, um, most people are still in the pursuit of happiness. And I guess Bitcoiners as well, freedom and happiness through Bitcoin is something that they, they uh, we all kind of strive to to become. So if you're not after happiness today, what, what you're going after? And then what you said about, you know, even if you have the freedom of, of location, time, and money, and you have all these freedom to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it and wherever you can do it, what are you going to do? It's like Bitcoin. It's like we pursue, we pursue hyper-Bitcoinization and a lot of people think that that's the end, but that's really the beginning. Um, the same thing with freedom. It's like you finally achieved the freedom that you always wanted and then what do you do with it? And what do you do with it is the thing that really speaks to who you are um, as a person. So today, if you're not after happiness, what are you going after these days? Usefulness. Um, Usefulness? Okay. Yeah, I think um, to be useful is a much better goal than to be happy. Um, and funnily enough, I, I was never more depressed than when I was obsessed with happiness, and I've never been happier than when I think it's a silly goal. Um, and so yeah, by, by virtue of chasing it, it's like chasing your tail. It just runs away from you. There's going to be a hell of a lot of painful things that you're going to have to experience in, in the human experience. Everybody does. There's going to be loss. There's going to be pain. There's going to be trauma. There's going to be a lot of terrible things. And whether or not you're Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky, those things are still going to happen and they're still going to suck. Um, and there's going to be a lot of suffering for those reasons. And you still got to wake up and put your shoes on every day and and find food and, and everything. And so in that there's a level of friction um, that is ingrained into our biology. If there was no friction at all, if we were completely comfortable, happy, serene beings, we wouldn't get up and and do anything. You know, the, the, the happy squirrel never finds the nut. Um, <clears throat> there has to be a level of dissatisfaction to instigate movement um, or to motivate there to be change. And so that change has to be towards some sort of purpose that you are serving to the world rather than being in the frame of, you know, the world has a bunch of things it can offer me and I need to go and get them. Um, the, the frame now is much more like, what do I have to offer to the world? And, and I think you get a lot more meaning out of life by approaching it that way. Why do you think when we pursue happiness, it's the, the, the opposite that we get depression? If happiness is your metric for if, it, if happiness is your end goal then it's your metric for success and if it's your metric for success and happiness is also the byproduct of a decrease in the distance between yourself and your successful attainment of your goal but then your successful attainment of the goal is happiness itself then every time that you're not happy or you have a bad day not only are you not happy but you're also a failure which just adds to the shitness of the situation i don't know if i can swear sorry um but it just adds to to how bad the situation is. Um, and so there ends up being an element of self-loathing then where it's like, you know, I portray myself as like this super happy person and I've fixed all my problems and, and I just, I love every day and I find bliss in the small things and all of that. And then you have a bad day and you're just like, oh, I'm a failure. You know, it's like the classic, there's like a lot of life 
coaches out I, I went to Bali for two months and there's lots of life coaches in Bali and um and I came home uh to to the villa that we were staying at one night and this life coach that we were staying with was just sat there um crying and everything and I was trying to help her and it's like god yeah and, and she was saying you know I, I'm offering all this advice to people on how to live their lives but I can't even live my one properly um and there's a similar situation that happens when when happiness is the goal because it's like yeah it doubles down on on the negative on the negativity of the um your failure to achieve happiness and then the second thing is that it's all self-oriented and you don't get meaning from pleasure and meaning offsets suffering pleasure does not offset suffering um if you've just lost your leg and you have a lollipop i don't think you're going to care about the fact that you've got some pleasure from the lollipop but you know if you lost the leg because you were saving about 60 people from dying as a result of you not losing the leg, then you might be a bit more okay with it. It's not pleasure that offsets it, it's meaning. And so having pleasure as that, or happiness, which is similar as that goal, is just going to make you self-serving, which is going to make you depressed. That's true. Do you recall when was the time that you made the switch between the pursuit of happiness to pursuit of meaning and usefulness? It was a gradual process. I realized that happiness was a terrible goal when I was like 16, I think, um, I began to realize that and then, but I didn't know what to replace it with for a while. So, um, but just getting, getting rid of it as a goal without a replacement still funnily enough benefited my happiness, um, or increased my general happiness. But then, yeah, over the, the past few years, um, sort of, I think it was like probably in 20, 2020 that I realized uh that usefulness is the best is the best replacement but your goal has shifted in life how would you approach a bad day so previously if you had a bad day and if you're in the pursuit of happiness then it's very self-centric but if you're having a bad day now with the new perspective you have how would you rationalize it today um so back then if you know something bad happened and it was it was time to have a bad day about it. I would uh, first off say, nah, I didn't, I know it was bad, but I, I don't actually care about it. Um, so it's fine. And then the next day after that, I'd be like, all right, maybe I do care a little bit about it. And it, it is kind of annoying, but like, it's not going to affect me. I'm above it. Like, it's fine. And then like the next day after that, I'd be like, ah, oh, this really does suck. I do care about it, which means I lied to myself for the past two days, which means I'm a liar at a failure and my day sucks. And then it would just, it just delay the whole process. Now, if something bad happens, um, I'm like, this sucks. It genuinely does suck. I'm going to experience all of the pain. I'm going to experience the suffering and I'm not going to resist it. I'm just going to let it happen. And you let it happen, you experience it, welcome it in and it runs its course and then you're back on track. Um, and you know, that's how the natural progression of emotion is supposed to work. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm much less scared of bad days now. I'm much less scared of the sort of dark side of life, um, I, I have a much more welcoming attitude towards it now. And, and funnily enough, that, that actually tends to reduce the, the frequency and amplitude of the badness. And in hindsight, now 10 years have almost passed and looking back to your journey, would you, would you have done the same? You said you overestimated certain things, underestimated certain things. Would you have done the same? First question. And then the second is anything you would have done differently? Uh, so yes, I would uh, definitely have done the same thing. I think um, 
it's been one hell of an adventure if nothing else and even if it doesn't work out i'm i'm content with just the adventure that of of trying to to do this weird approach to life and see if it works and be the lab rat that um that sort of <laughs> it just volunteers themselves to see if school is entirely necessary um the answers that the, well the question won't be answered until the end of my days i guess for for me personally but um so far the answer is like a resounding yes um and um and in terms of things that i would do differently um it's hard to say because human development is a very complex system it's got lots of moving parts and it's it's hard to say exactly what is it's hard to dis- distinguish between what is negative and what is incorrect because there are negative parts of human development um but that doesn't necessarily make them incorrect they may be necessary parts of the process um and so there were t- there were dark times um but i see them as necessary um because they change you and you grow through them um so i wouldn't say yeah i wouldn't say i would i would change anything because I, i'm just not um god's plan right yeah and i had a question just from what you were saying typically as a kid or as a as a person growing up either a kid or adult we find something to ground ourselves and we constantly find these reference point around us to self-reflect and find a place for ourselves. So if you, as a kid, didn't grow up in the conventional school system, um, how, how have you been grounding yourself? What have you been grounding yourself towards, um, either that's today or today as an adult? Um, what do you mean by grounding? It makes you centered. So it, it makes you be become less easy to get pulled into different directions. You know what you're doing. You know who you who you are, um, and you're certain that this is the way you're. You have a very decided way to approach life, and is not easily influenced. Mm, okay. Um, well, there has there has been lots of different pulling in different directions. Um, over the past 10 years. Um, <laughs> and, uh, again, I think some of that is necessary. It's trial and error. Um, and so, you know, I think you, the, the way I've, I've often had a, a sort of visual metaphor for, for life that stuck with me, which is like, you're kind of blindfolded in a pitch black maze. Um, and you've got to find your way to the center and, you know, you don't want to walk into any walls and hurt yourself because that would suck. But, you know, if you don't do that, then you'll never find your way to the center. And so the only way to map the territory is to bump into some walls and get some bruises. Um, and from, you know, touching the stove and getting burned, you realize that was a bad, bad idea. Don't do that again. And then you don't, and then you learn. And that's the process of learning. And that's the process of growth. Um, so I, I'd say to an extent, I haven't had something that I've like used to restrain myself um, I've more just decided to to run at all the walls and take all the bruises, um, which is, I don't know if that's the best route to go about life, but I mean, I'm alive, so. 
You're like, I'm just gonna be a gritty person to the point that from all the walls I hit, I can still survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the goal. I know it's probably too early to ask you this question, but now that you didn't go through a conventional education system, have you thought about how you will approach your children's education? Especially now, you're also a Bitcoiner, and we hear this um, the, the the voice around homeschooling is getting louder and louder. So, have you put any thought into that? I think if the world hasn't been exploded by nuclear catastrophe or some other sort by the time I have kids, I think they will have fixed school.、Um, Because they will have replaced、uh, the teachers and hopefully switched the curriculum.、Um, I actually, to be fair, they may not have switched the curriculum. It hasn't changed in hundreds of years.、Um, maybe it still won't have changed by then. That's fair enough. But I think that at least it will be. It, they'll probably be utilizing technology to to tailor each student's learning to their own speed,、um, and so.、Um, That solves like the speed issue with traditional education, at least.、Um, but you know, depending on how things are going, there may be lots of invested interest、um, in controlling the narrative, and school is a great way to do that.、Um, start them young and all of that. So, depending on how the education system is looking at the time. The decision will be made based on that, because I think it will change drastically by before then.、Um, and if it hasn't changed drastically, if it's if it's still the same thing, I still send them to school, and you know, see see what happens with them.、Um, and and you know, so long as as things aren't looking terribly indoctrinative,、um, then yeah, I think I still think school is the best route for most. Um, people,、uh, but if I have the opportunity, and I hope that I will, to, to home educate, it would definitely be like on the on the table from the beginning. But I wouldn't want to just take school away from my kids、um, from the get go just because that's what I did. If you do that, and then eventually decided to quit, you probably can't blame them. No, I would be like, "Come on, we can join the club. It's great." <laughs> of course, not to encourage everyone to quit school,、um, but for the younger friends out there who are listening to this show, or just people in general who are looking to pursue a life path of their own and are facing resistance,、uh, what are some advice you can give it to them when trying to communicate their vision to their loved ones for permission or blessing? How should they approach their decisions and the communication with others?、Uh, ask forgiveness, not permission. Um, if you've got something you want to do, do it. And if people have got a problem with that,、um, they can get out of the way. And you're probably wrong as well about the thing that you want. But at least when you find out you're wrong, you're wrong. You'll have a sense of why, and that'll help you redirect towards what you actually do want.、Um, and you know, there there was a great quote、um, that I heard the other day from Carl Jung that said,、uh, "If the path ahead is clear, then it's not your path."、Um, I think there's 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 definitely a a large bias towards low risk appetite approaches to life in the safety of today's world,、um, but there is lots of resources to go about. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore,、um, and so you'll probably make do.、Uh, just don't cave to the pressure of following the, the the beaten path just because it's what people around you want. Because then, you know. When you sacrifice your autonomy to the opinions of those around you, not only do you damage your own progression 
but you also breed resentment between yourself and the people whose opinions you are allowing to to gain an unearned level of autonomy over the direction of your life and so it will damage your relationships with the people that you care about as well um and so that they're going to have problems with you doing your own thing especially if they're not doing their own thing um or or taking their own path because it will offend them because your existence will be a reminder that uh, of their own cowardice in some sense um but that's their problem um and you know there's a, a quote from the military that says a uh, um our lead follow or get out of the way um and so choose one uh there is no fourth option uh i heard this on naval's podcast that a lot of people don't want to lead they don't want to follow but they don't want to get out of the way either they just want to poke holes in things and be annoying um don't be one of those people um especially if you have a cynical edge lots of bitcoiners do have a cynical edge and they can tend to be a little bit like that um so yeah if anyone like that is listening don't do that you know if if you can't uh follow or get out of the way then then you've got to lead something and it's scary but you just got to give it a go wow that's powerful and it's a uh, it sounds like a perfect message to bitcoiners as well so let's let's talk bitcoin um how does bitcoin fit into your life there're not many people that have been a bitcoiner since they're 13 years old not many um so how does bitcoin fit into your story um so yeah it's been sort of the the focal point of my education been probably the first few years it was sort of i was gently flirting with bitcoin um because i was dumb and i didn't understand it um and then i went through my crypto phase and because uh, i was dumb and i didn't understand it and then as i got older and matured i sort of reverted back to just bitcoin um and yeah it's it's sort of put food on the table for me um throughout that that period um instead of ending up with student debt i ended up with sats which is better um so so that's that's another way that it's affected me and then also just the i think the conversations that you have as a result of your interest in bitcoin tend to have a transformative effect on your values and personality what is bitcoin to you now or in the future the thing to which i wish to be useful a binary split path of how the world could develop over the next 10 to 20 years one leads to a more centralized future um mm-hmm. to be honest i think both actually lead to a more centralized future but the only difference is the one with bitcoin in it has a opt out option um which changes everything because i guess this sort of relates back to my perspective on authority when i was younger as well but i've i've not liked the idea of i've never liked the idea of um other people having too much leverage over other people um or over myself i just don't think that um having such a high degree of leverage over somebody's decision making is a good or natural way for humans to cooperate and if we go towards a more centralized future in which there isn't an opt out then it changes the game entirely because people have to conform to whatever rules and regulations are put in place by those with the central power but if there is a opt out then people can choose to retain their autonomy even in the face of oppressive regimes that may or may not arise in the next 10 to 20 years um and so if i could be useful towards that um towards developing the the lifeboat um uh, or at least helping uh 
awareness around the development of the lifeboat, um, then yeah, that gives me my purpose. Um, and that's something that I, I, I genuinely feel like would, um, would justify lots of the, the, the bad days we were talking about and the suffering that is inevitable in life. So it's, it's very much a North Star. Talking about future, what's your impression and observation so far on Bitcoin adoption among Gen Z? It, it's not seen as some as, as a lifeboat at all yet. It's still people don't even know the ship is sinking, so there is no no one's even looking for lifeboats. Um, mm. But that's starting to change now with the cost of living um, starting to actually burn some people. Um, they're they're more aware now that there is an actual issue, and that, like you know, I think the. I saw a chart the other day that the Great British Pound had lost like 30, 33% of its value since 2020 or something. And so when people have savings and it's like, I just saved them and now I'm less wealthy. I did nothing wrong and my wealth was drained. People start to get a bit offended by that. And then they start to, to you know, listen at least when I say, hey, you know, there is an alternative. Um, but when people don't know there's a problem, they don't listen to the alternative. But it is it's shifting slowly. But I think just issues around general financial literacy um, are a massive bottleneck towards large-scale Gen Z adoption or understanding of Bitcoin. We're debating about this very question, like what is the hurdle of Gen Z Bitcoin adoption or adoption in general at the uh, one of the Twitter space the other day? And um, I, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Mountain Is You. So basically it's a book about how do we stop self-sabotaging and transform that energy into something that's productive um, and work towards your life's goal, right? So it's, it's very much, and it's a very profound self-help book. It's one of the, the better ones I've read um, recently. And basically, one of the concepts it mentioned in the book I found very relevant in the in the Bitcoin adoption realm is that people don't gravitate towards happiness. People gravitate towards comfort. Um, so they would people would only want to change a situation if staying in that very situation is more is is more uncomfortable than changing it. Mm. And that's when they they want to take action towards it. That's when they try to get out of it. And if um, if staying in the status quo meaning that it, it gives them more comfort is something that they're more familiar with, and even though they're suffering, even though they're they're unhappy, the comfort will stop them from being proactive into looking for new solutions. And I think that's absolutely correct. And adoption in the end of the day happens through necessity, in my opinion. And this is why we're seeing we're seeing we're seeing so much more pushback from developed. Uh, nations and developed developed regions in around the world versus places like Latin America or or Africa, where the need of Bitcoin is just way more prominent um, already. And people, when the people are so preoccupied um, and kind of harmed by by inflation by the lose of purchasing power over the years over a very short period of time then they are forced they're so uncomfortable to the point that they have to link, look into other options and thankfully bitcoin is there and we are um seeing this trend way more even spilled over all regions of the world so i do think it's going to happen um, maybe sooner than we think, but it was all. It will also. Be, it will also mean that the world is just going to be uh, much, much 
more difficult place for all of us to navigate through, either through,、uh, with Bitcoin or not. This is a very widely debated topic inside of the Bitcoin community. When we try to entrepreneur people, is that how toxic we want to be to maximize our chance to entrepreneur others? So first, what is your definition of being toxic in the context of Bitcoin? The reason Bitcoin appealed to me so much is because I already had a baseline distrust of authority, and so Bitcoin, the money without essential authority, obviously I'm going to find that interesting. The same thing happens to lots of people,、um, and the the personality dimension that predicts、um, natural deference to authority, I think, is it was.、Um, Politeness, I think, which is a sub subcategory of agreeableness. It was either that or or assertiveness, which is a a subscale of、um, of extroversion. I can't remember which,、um, but one of the two basically predicts you know how much trust you have in authority,、um, and being toxic、um, is kind of just being low in politeness,、um, and so naturally, lots of Bitcoiners.、Um, Especially the hardcore maxis are, are people who are already low in politeness,、um, and so they're going to have naturally some toxic ways of communicating,、um, and that tends to be received well by particular portions of the population,、um, notably other people who are also low in politeness. So, so the message is is heard by people who resemble the sender in some sense,、um, but if we want Wider scale understanding of Bitcoin, then you got to drop the toxicity stuff because lots of people just aren't—they're just—they're just not tuned into that. They're not going to be receptive to it, especially if you have all of the、um, intellectual pride around, you know, the the system is screwed, and I'm the only one that can see it, as, as well as my cool buddies who can also see it. And like you're dumb because you don't understand, and, and it's just like, all this attitude. And it's like, why would you want to listen to that? No one would want to listen to that. You need to stop doing that if you want. Like a lot of normal people to think the Bitcoin is something other than, you know, it gets associated with right wing politics and and just all sorts of craziness.、Um, like it, it, Bitcoin is apolitical,、um, and if you want people to 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 grasp it on on a large scale, then you got to take lots of the politics away from it, and and lots of that is is sort of、um, subtextual or. Or, or con- contextual when you're in the way that you're conveying the information. So yeah, toxicity works、uh, to find as like a sort of a a、um, uh, a wolf's howl in a sense to find other similar people who are already predisposed to a Bitcoin understanding. But the people who aren't predisposed to it, they need something. They need someone to talk to them as well.、Um, So yeah, but the toxic people—you're not going to get them to stop being toxic. So I don't think as a anyone should go around pointing fingers or waving sticks saying be less toxic. I think we just need more Bitcoiners, and then we'll get more polite Bitcoiners who can speak to other polite people who who are just civilized and want to have a normal talk about how to you know save money better. I've heard so much conflict opinions when it comes to how toxic. Toxic Bitcoiners should be. Do hear stories that、um, people do appreciate, and because of the the, the low in politeness and constantly drill the message into other people's head, it does work to some extent. But personally, like I'm a diplomat, and I do believe that 
being toxic it's not the only way to show that you care about them mm-hmm. um because because you see these tweets online and, and people say oh like being toxic is caring it's it's just another way of saying i love you in bitcoin <laughs> um, which which i also get but i'm a diplomat i find it difficult to really um to to really be on the toxic side and sometimes i see people in my real life and their personal print they're not bitcoiners yet um but they're i can see how their personalities their personal principles how they've made life decisions already so aligned with the bitcoin ethos and i say to them that oh you're already a bitcoiner you just don't know it yet but Right after I say it, I find myself very condescending to to even say that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I even tried to avoid that line. So this is partially I'm doing the show is to 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 show that you know we're we're Bitcoiners, we're just everyday people living our lives, um, and how to, we're we're trying to incorporate Bitcoin into different aspects in our life so we can be better human beings in general and fundamentally fundamentally we want the same thing we want to have a fulfilled free life um and bitcoin is a great tool for all of us to achieve that and it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter where you are um the 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 option is there for you if you look for it so do you think if there's some sort of balance we we can achieve between being persistent and being very clear on the message and being caring or less offensive. So so long as you talk to people like they're people and you're you're trying to convey information to them and you're not trying to flex all of your economic knowledge and, and tech knowledge and stuff um, or tell them that they're stupid in any silly way, then I think people will listen, um, even if it is offensive um because it's i mean just telling people that they're losing all of their life savings by holding cash uh you're you're criticizing their their choices which is offensive straight off the bat so there's no way around that um but you know you're on their side when you're talking to them and that's just what you've got to remember um i think i've I've overheard lots of conversations where where people convincing themselves that they're trying to help somebody better store their wealth but really they're just trying to dance in front of them about how much better they are at storing their wealth and you know if you weren't so stupid you would be like me and all of that and it's just there's going to be people like that I don't think there's anything um we can do to change it um at at the end of the day when you're trying to help people they have to to want to be helped in a sense, um, some people just won't listen, um, and in, until they get burnt, and then they start listening, uh, which is unfortunate because they that way they get burnt. Um, but the best you can do is is talk to the people that that you love um, and that you hold dear to, and just explain to them at eye level, um, you know why you think they should be considering uh, an alternative um, form of money. Um, and, and yeah, just on the, on getting them to understand, don't, I, I think people get really hyped up about all of the philosophical side of it and about freedom and, and autonomy and how the state sucks and don't, don't explain all of the stuff about why the state sucks and they're being, they're having all their value harvested by the money printer and all of this. That, that's just too much. Generally, all you have to say is like, look, the value that you hold your, your purchasing power is going down. If you put it in, and it's going down because the supply of money is going up. If you put your money in this 
monetary vehicle, the supply is fixed. And so it may be volatile, but over the long term, there's no um, reason for it to, to go down, at least not by way of the supply increasing. But, you know, if you keep it the way that it is, then you are locking in the certainty that you will be losing X amount of wealth every year. Um, it, it may be beneficial to you to just consider holding some of this Bitcoin stuff because, you know, as your your cash is losing value, at least a portion of it might not be. And it might actually be gaining a lot of value because it's in the early stages of development still. Um, just coming at it from that frame, I think, um, rather than getting all um, Austrian on everyone who, who's not even looked into economics before, it's probably better. That's true. There are two key points that I absolutely right. The first is that you cannot try to underpill people with a mindset of flexing. You cannot try to introduce to Bitcoin with a narrative that I'm better. I'm so much better than you. Um, I think that's gonna shine through because some people don't realize that. Some people, um, people talk to. We make conversations, and sometimes we flex without even realizing that we're flexing. Um, and I think Bitcoiners can be guilty of that sometimes. Oh, yeah. um, we have to archbill others with the genuine intention to help them, um, to help them understand. Um, tell me what you don't know about Bitcoin. I'm here to answer your questions, right? That mentality instead of trying to show off that um, I'm, I'm better than you in certain regards or um, I know so much more than you, you do. And then the... Second aspect you mentioned is that to approach it with less certainty um, in the sense that sometimes we uh, we have this echo chamber and we say, oh, we're going to win. And um, but we actually don't know, like Bitcoiners are taking huge risks as well, because there are still so many things that can potentially happen, like all the Black Swan events and um, companies go up and down. And we have we can only protect ourselves so much as Bitcoiners um, against whatever is to come to us. Right. So there is a risk associated to it. And if you say to people about if you talk to people about Bitcoin with just certainty, the absolute certainty, then it's normal that they get uh, skeptical because no, nothing is 100%. Like anything can happen and anything, everything's possible. So if we approach this topic with absolute certainty and with zero space for risk, then it's, it's normal for people to get skeptical on the spot and get rebellious um, to... to and then that would end up hurting their the, their ability to receive the message. And growing up, we hear countless voices around us, either from parents, from teachers, from peers, media, employers, friends, like the list goes on. And as well as internal voices that are within ourselves. And I think we can both agree that they're, not all of these voices are true or um, nor well-intentioned even. And you can certainly, you've certainly been someone who's very intentional with your life choices and made your own mind about a lot of things. So how do you um, distinguish between noises and signals, not just in Bitcoin, but in our daily lives as well as for big or small decisions? Mm, that's a great question. Um, you can never really know what the... The signal is all you can aim to do is consistently reduce the noise um, and as you reduce the noise you get closer to the signal but you'll, you'll never know exactly what that is um, so you 
you, you, in some sense, people want to look for the positive. They want to look for the signal. They want to look for the thing. Um, but sometimes the best you can hope for is a silhouette of the thing and a silhouette by definition, you're not seeing the thing. You're just seeing everything that it's not. Um, and once you remove enough of stuff and identify fallacies in your reasoning or assumptions that you would perhaps learn through osmosis with peers, um, and, and disregard and disregard and disregard things that, that are untrue, that are noise, um, you get closer to the signal. And so I think everybody has a sort of internal compass to a certain degree um, that you can tune into more or less that it, it doesn't really tell you when things are, when you're on the right path, because no one knows what the right path is, but it will tell you when you're going wrong. Um, and so just listen to that. And, and, you know, people do all sorts of self-deception to avoid acknowledging when their behavior is straying to the wrong side um, because maybe it benefits you in the short term to stay on the wrong path. But, but there is a, a long-term compass, I think, in, in everybody um, that, you know, on some degree, um, I had this conversation with a friend the other day. They said, you know, um, I'm feeling lost. What shall I do? Um, and, and I just said, you know what to do. Um, and then he was just like, oh, yeah, I do. And I think that to some extent, like that's all people need sometimes is just a little bit of like confirmation. Um, like you already know these things. People are just in, incessantly doubtful of their own decision making. The belief that you hold that you, that you don't know what to do um, oftentimes is like a, a way of um, justifying not doing it. Um, and sometimes all you have to do is question be more cynical about your own cynicism. If you're, if you're cynical that you don't know what to do, be cynical about the cynical the cynicism that you don't know what to do. And sometimes then answers just emerge. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Because if you think about it, how do we figure out what do we want as humans in life? Oftentimes, it's, it's not about distinguishing between things I want and don't want. It's about eliminating or slowly figuring out what's not for you. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that enough like i don't want this i don't want that and if you do that enough then the su the subset where you have to work off the problem is way way smaller um and less confusing and you suffer less from the paradox of choice because you're eliminating the wrong answers along the way after almost 10 years of being a bitcoiner you're still in your early 20s so lots of us would be super jealous of that um, what are you doing now and big plans for the new year at the moment i'm starting up a um a video agency because you know video is the primary medium of communication in the digital world um and if we want lots of people to utilize bitcoin um there are two ways to do it you either make it uh immediately useful for them that's what all the the techies are doing um or you explain to them why they should be paying attention to it and that's what all of the communicationies are doing i'm more of a communicationy because i'm not smart enough at least yet to be working on the tech side um and I've got a background in video and I worked as a content creator for the past two years at a, a Bitcoin brokerage making educational Bitcoin videos uh, for their YouTube channel and, and stuff like that. So the idea is that um, to get people to understand Bitcoin, you have to convey information to them about the thing um, on a large scale. And the information doesn't taste great to most people because they're just not that interested in finance and money and economics and whatnot. Um, but 
the delivery mechanism of that information is is video that's the best delivery mechanism nobody reads anymore like not not normal people at least um and and so you, you've got to talk to them through video uh, if you're doing it on a wide scale and if you can increase the quality of the delivery mechanism then you can increase increase the the efficacy of the information um and so the idea with the video agency is 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 longer term to um you know take what i found about going through millions and, and millions of educational videos online during my self-education process and and getting a really good sense of what worked and what didn't um and then help some bitcoin companies communicate better to their their customers um and and also just to the general public about bitcoin and why it's important um so the idea is to make the information taste better um so that more people actually drink the medicine because uh Unfortunately, they still don't even know they're sick, and um, and so you've got to get the medicine in before before they realize they're sick. Because at that point, it'll be too late. And so the only way to do that is to make the the medicine taste a bit better. So that's the idea with permissionless. You're uh, sugarcoating the orange pill. Mm-hmm. Sugarcoating the orange <laughs> pill. I like that. I'm going to use that. Got that. I need to get you involved. <laughs> oh wow. Um. Wow. Nice. Nice. Um. Interested to learn whatever you come up with next. How do we stay close to your work? I'm on Twitter at Angelo underscore Summers, S-O-M-E-R-S. The website for Permissionless should be live by then. It's permissionlessltd.com. But I'd say, yeah, those are the two main places just to, to keep up with what I'm doing. Thank you so much for joining the show. And um, thank you everyone for tuning in. Again, Happy New Year. If you like this content, please remember to like, subscribe and spread the words and send a few sets. Um, we'll see you in the upcoming episodes in 2024 and wish everyone a Happy New Year.